People of Note on Fine Music Radio is proudly brought to you each week at this time by Peter Turin Productions. This is Rodney Trudgeon introducing you to this week's edition of People of Note right here on Fine Music Radio. For the last four or five days, I've been immersed in the most extraordinary crime thriller called The Dark Flood, a Benny Chrysal novel written by Dion Mayer, whom Wilbur Smith, the late and much lamented Wilbur Smith, calls the undisputed champion of South African crime. I hadn't read one of Dion's books before, and I'm not a fast reader, but this one had me turning page as a page turner and really leaving me quite traumatized and thrilled all at the same time. And now it's a great pleasure to welcome Dion Mayer himself into the People of Note studio. And Dion, welcome. Thank it's you very much. It's great to have you here. Thanks for having and me. And as I said, it's odd to read a novel where you know you're going to introduce and interview the author because you think, well, I must ask him this and I must ask him that. But we mustn't do any spoilers. Uh, well, no, we shouldn't. <laughs> but first of all, mm. just let me say that tell me a little bit about Benny Chrysal, a sort of ex-alcoholic, and you've used him in a few of your books, haven't you? Yeah, I created the character 25 years ago, 26 wow. years ago. Uh, and I, he was never meant to be a protagonist. When I created him in uh, my first translated novel called Dead Before Dying, I needed a character in a specific scene to spoil the fun uh, of the protagonist, Mathieu Bear. And on the fly, I created a character and I needed him to be drunk. I needed him to be a drunken cop because he needed to be drunk for the specific scene. Usually when I create a major character, I will spend a lot of time thinking about their name and surname because for me, that's got to feel right. But in this case, thinking that it's going to be a couple of pages that I'm going to use this character and then he's going to be gone, I did not spend a lot of time. I thought of one of my favorite teachers at school and I thought this character sort of looks like the son of one of my favorite teachers at school. Uh, this teacher was Mr. Ben Grissel and his son was Benny Grissel. You know, in my head, he was looking a little bit like Benny Grissel, and I called him Benny Grissel. And from the moment that Benny Grissel, the character, walked onto the page, he made things happen, and he he made the process of writing uh, easier and more exciting. And he just didn't want to go away. So by the end of the book, he <laughs> had become one more than just a minor character. He had become one of the substantial characters in the book. And I, I liked writing about him so much uh, that I thought, you know, I have to keep him in mind as a possible major character, in a, a protagonist in a future novel. And I think it took me two or three books before I found a story and I thought, this is perfect for Benny Grissel. <laughs> And then I had a problem because the whole concept of uh, an alcoholic detective with a lot of inner demons is a bit of a cliche in the genre. There are so many of them. But I thought I have to do something with this character. And my solution was to really start doing research about what it is to be an alcoholic. And uh, for me, one of the beautiful parts of this story is that my translator at that time was uh, the late, great Madeleine von Bouillon. 
she translated my early, I think, three or four books from Afrikaans to the English. Because you write in Afrikaans, don't you? I write in And Afrikaans. then they are all translated, translated into English. Yeah. Yeah. And Madeleine was a self-confessed and very outspoken alcoholic. So she was my first port of call. I said, Madeleine, I want to talk to you about being an alcoholic, what it's like. And uh, she gave her signature big laugh and said, come along. And we had a lunch. And then she took me to some Alcoholics Anonymous meetings with her. I was the guest at some of these meetings. And she really made a big difference in how I approached the character and his battle with the bottle. And uh, he's been battling to stay on the wagon all through the series. I think this is the sixth Benny Grissel and Vaughan Cupido novel. Uh, and that's how he became a... You know, and the, the, the interesting thing is I never wanted to write a series um, because I always felt that that would somehow inhibit mm. my creativity. I wanted yeah. to tell stories, and I always thought that the story should be paramount. And if I found a story that I loved and felt passionate about, then I'll find the right characters. But it's it's crazy how when you create a character, you write a novel, and the, the readers start reacting very positively, and publishers love a series, uh, and they start telling you that this is this is <laughs> a good way to go, then you find more stories to fit these characters. Yeah, absolutely. Because first and foremost, you are a storyteller, aren't you? I think I read somewhere, as you've just said, you love telling a story. Yeah, you know, I I mean, I never thought of myself, I want to become an author. Authors were sort of these very smart people with big beards and smoke long pipes and thought deep thoughts. And I was never quite like that. I, I always thought of myself as, as just a storyteller. And mm. I, still, I still think that that is who I really am. It was very interesting hearing you talk mm. about how Benny Kriesel came into existence because he's drawn in such a sympathetic way that you do feel sympathy for him. His son, Fritz, who keeps saying, are you sober? And you just yeah. it sort of hurts mm. you think, shame, poor Benny. But there are other major characters in this book, for example. So one of my questions was going to be, how do you think up these? What comes first, the story or the characters? For me, the story always comes first. Right. Um, I th and that's one of the reasons why I was very hesitant to do a series because mm. I thought if I forced a story onto a character, it might not work. But as I said, you know, once you get your head around the fact that people really like the character and like the series, then it's funny how you sort of naturally migrate towards stories that will fit them. Yeah. I have written uh, novels like Fever a couple of years ago that was uh, totally different and, and not these characters at all, or like Trackers, but more and more I find myself finding stories that will fit Benny and Vaughan. Okay, well I want to find out more about how you find the stories, right. where they come from, but first of all, let's have our first music break, and I read some and I see from your first choice that one of your favorite composers is Mozart. I think he is my ultimate favorite. Um, I'm a Mozart fanatic and uh, I chose the piano concerto number 22 K482, the Andante Cantabile, because that was my first real introduction to Mozart. That was the first time that I, and I did not grow up with uh, classical music per se, and I did not know Mo Mozart's work and I was in my, I think, late 20s when I heard this piece for the first time and I just immediately fell in love and then started listening more and more to Mozart and uh, I adore him.
There we heard part of Mozart's Piano Concerto Number no. 22, the slow movement, the Andante, and the performer there, Mitsuko Uchida Piano, with the English Chamber Orchestra, conducted by Jeffrey Tate. And the first choice of my guest on People of Note this week, the author Dion Mayer, and I've just been thrilled, traumatized, excited drawn to the edge of my seat by his latest novel, The Dark Flood. And just before we broke for music, Dion, I said to you, I want to know where these stories come from. I mean, clearly, once you've got the story, you have a lot of research to do because of the incredible detail and accuracy you need to have. So do you lie in bed and something comes? I know it's a naive question, but there you go. I want to see what you say. No, I think it's a very fair question, and it's a question that's often asked. And the answer is it comes, story ideas come from everywhere. I think once you start becoming a a, a full-time storyteller, then you are looking for story ideas wherever you go. I do a lot of reading. I read newspapers and, and magazines and I read news online. I talk to people wherever I go. I love listening to people's stories and you sort of collect all these story ideas in the back of your head. Uh, I used to, when I was younger, have this little notebook in which I wrote them down, and then I realized that the really good ones sort of stick. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you don't forget them. Yes. But it is often the case that you might have one idea that you think, wow, there's a lot of potential in this, but you can't quite figure out what the story is. And then a second idea often comes along, and when the two connect, there's a little spark, and you realize, wow, the combination of these two ideas, that's that's what's going to make the story work. For The Dark Flood, the obvious, uh, if when, when readers from South Africa read it, they will obviously know that it was definitely inspired by the Steinhoff saga, the uh, the great corporate scandal um, that happened yeah, in Stellenbosch. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And we were living in Stellenbosch, my wife and I, Marianne and I, we moved to Stellenbosch about 11 years ago. And we very much saw the impact of the Steinhoff saga on the town. And to me, that was very interesting. But we also, just before the Steinhoff saga broke, we started looking for a house in Stellenbosch, which was not easy because we uh, have six children uh, between us. We both work at home. So we needed uh, a a very big house. And uh, we couldn't afford... Uh, to pay uh, some of the prices that were asked in, in Stellenbosch. So it took us a long time. It took us about two years to find the right house. And in these two years, we spent a lot of time with Stellenbosch estate agents. And uh, it's an interesting job. And spending time with them, I started asking them questions about their work, their challenges, their frustrations, the interesting things that, that happened to them. And that was where the idea for the character Sandra Stienberg came from. Yes. And I I didn't quite know what to make of it. I knew I wanted to have uh, an estate agent who has some sort of a problem. And then the Steinhoff saga happened, and then you start asking questions. And playing, I, I think the thing that I do most often in terms of story development is I play what-if games. So, you know, when, when you see something like Steinhoff, then you start asking yourself, what if a character that is inspired by one of these executives, what if he wants to sell his very expensive wine farm? I see, I see. Um, But he doesn't want to do it to attract attention. So that's, uh, you add that little bit to the story. And then the other part of the story 
comes from a dinner that Mariana and I had with General Jeremy Veary and his wife oh, yes, uh, yes. In, um, in a small Karua town some years ago. And Jeremy was telling me the story, and I have to be very careful for no spoilers now, but he told me about a case that they had just dealt with, a, a case that they had wrapped up. And that was the other element that came in that created the spark. And I thought, if I can put these two things together, then we've got a story. But it's interesting. I, do, I think we're not going to do a spoiler if we say it was about a student who went missing from Stellenbosch, a rather strange student. No, absolutely. But that, that is made up. Uh, that was not part of the story that Jeremy told right, me. Right, but right. that was the way that I... Again, you know, these real events can only inspire. You can't copy them. For instance, this book is not about something like the Steinhoff scandal. Yeah, no, and one of the major reasons for that is that the Steinhoff scandal was just such an intricate and uh, uh, involved and uh, convoluted a bunch of transactions that you can never make crime fiction of that. You will take a hundred pages just to explain the crime. But it did inspire me to start thinking about what would happen about people that were in situations like that. Right, right. So, and again, with the story that Jeremy told me, I started playing the game of what if. Oh, yes. And yes, this yes. is where the, this missing student early in the novel, Benny Grissel and his, uh, his colleague, Vaughn Cupido, they have to go f look for a student that went missing over the weekend. They think he just had a booze up uh, and they are very frustrated because they are former Hawks detectives who have now have They've been demoted, demoted <laughs> and, uh, to the low level of finding drunk students. Yes. But then it turns out to be a bit more than that. Absolutely, gosh. And your device, for want of a better word, of running the two stories together, do you do that in a lot of your books? So, for example, within a chapter there about three or four sections where you switch between the two stories. So the reader is sort of thinking, how can these two possibly connect? And we won't say in this book if they do connect. And maybe they do, but in an unexpected sort of way. So that device, do you enjoy that sort of um Yes, I do. Device? I don't I don't always do it. Uh, sometimes the story is a bit more linear and singular. Mm -hmm. It depends on, you know, what you want to do with the story. Yeah. But I do enjoy it when it does that because it, it does allow you when the one storyline where you have to do more exposition, you can keep the suspense in the other storyline oh, going and right. keep the attention. So right. it does offer you the opportunity to, to keep the suspense levels up. Yeah, as it does with some degree of <laughs> success <laughs> in this book. What's your next choice, Dion? Uh, my next choice is uh, Verdi's Ricoletto, uh, Bella Figlia dell'Amore, but specifically the uh, recording um, with Joan Sutherland and Luciana Pavarotti and Richard Boninge as, uh, as the, conductor the conductor with the London Symphony Orchestra. Is there a reason for this? Well, yeah. I mean, I... Uh, I read Joan Sutherland's uh, biography many years ago, and there's the beautiful story of how they picked Pavarotti to be her singing partner. Uh, and I just think that, uh, as, a, as a matter of fact, there's a recording of a live performance of this opera on YouTube, a video. Mm -hmm. And the uh, applause is longer than the aria itself, because yes. I think it is the most exquisite way to uh, portray both Joan Sutherland and Pavarotti's voices uh, with two other incredible singers. It is just absolute perfection. Bella figlia dell'amore, schiavo son de vecchi tuoi. 
truly great moments in opera, the quartet from Rigoletto, that famous recording there with Joan Sutherland and Pavarotti, the choice of my guest, the author, 
Dion Mayer, who's on People of Note with me this week. I've just read his latest novel, The Dark Flood. I absolutely recommend you read it, but make sure you have time because it's going to become a page-turner. The other thing, Dion, that strikes me with novels, whether you're reading Frederick Forsyth or Stephen Leather or you, is the amount of research you must do. Uh, For example, in this book, all the things you talk about, the police force and the various forms and the processes... Is that very time-consuming? Yes, it is. But the great thing about research is that it multiplies your creative choices. When you do no research, you have a a singular story that you're going to tell, and you won't see other avenues in which the story can develop uh, or directions that it can move in. So what research does, first and foremost, is it gives you so many more story options. Mm -hmm. When I start writing, I don't do a lot of planning in terms of what I exactly want I want to do with the story because I feel that you have to sort of discover the story in the writing when I saw as you I, go along sort of thing yeah it's you know, sort it's of generic it can't, not generic what's the word um, it grows yeah but, but but it's it's very hard to explain because when I start I have an ending in mind I you know I can't start unless I have an ending that I think yes that would work and that would work well but I I hate holding on too tightly to that ending because as I say the moment you start doing research and also in the development of the story you write and then things happen on the page or you discover something new in the research that you think oh this would be a much better ending and then you start writing in that direction (laughs) and then sometimes I mean I've written books where I used the ending that I started with and I've used books in which the ending changed three or four or five times until you Every time there's something better that you come up with. That. So, but, but that's the thing about research, is mm-hmm. that, well, first of all, my favorite English word is verisimilitude. Oh, uh, very and, good. And, no one uses that. Yeah, I know. But, you know, th- that's what a, especially crime fiction needs verisimilitude. Mm. It needs that texture of the truth. It's got to feel real. So if I'm going to write about the police, I would love a police detective or a police woman or man to read the book and say, yes, he did his homework, he got it right. So I can trust him to uh, to treat. Uh, the police fairly and to to write a book that is uh, is believable but i also think for the for the reader it's interesting to know for instance when a person goes missing in south africa what how does the police handle this when a case like that comes in Mm. uh what are the procedures I, i used to love that i was usually influenced by uh ed mcbain the american crime author who did that sort of thing wonderfully uh and it to me, it it added a layer of of reality to the story that that I loved, and I eventually I think all authors write for themselves, for the reader within. Uh, so I write the kind of stories that I would have liked to read, with with that sort of texture of the real world thrown in. Mm-hmm. Um, I I had the great privilege of working with the Stellenbosch detectives for a couple of days in oh, Stellenbosch. Actually in Stellenbosch. Yeah, yeah they yeah. allowed me into this inner sanctum. I uh, attended a morning parade meeting with them just to see how they operate and to to really get to understand how they spend their time, what do they do during the day, the challenges that they have, what sort of shifts they work, who allocates the case to them, who drives them, that sort of thing. So, And again, that gives... When you write suspense fiction or crime fiction, then conflict is 
your major tool because conflict is the mother of suspense. And the more you can find these little elements of conflict within their daily lives, I think the more it enhances the The, the more human level. they seem as yeah. well, apart from anything else. And Dion, how long did it take you to write The Dark Flood? The problem is that, you know, with book tours and um, I've been involved in making television series and movies as well, uh, it often takes me two years now to finish a novel. The, the, the actual writing time is perhaps seven, eight months, um, but from start to finish, it's it's often eight, uh, 24 months now. Because now we're just going to move away from, otherwise it would seem as if this is the only book you've ever written. <laughs> it's just that the first, it's the first one I've read of yours, right. and I'm so terribly impressed, and it has quite an ending, which we won't tell anybody right. about. Um, but this film thing you mentioned earlier uh, about the singer who's just died, you made. But so film script writing is also quite a big thing for you. Yeah, you know, again, being a storyteller, there are different media to tell stories in novels, short stories, and then movies and TV series. And sometimes you find a story idea that you know this is not a novel, this should be a movie. The late Tian Jordan, who passed away yesterday, was a great friend of mine, and I'm still incredibly sad about his passing. Uh, I loved the man, and I loved his music. My very first movie that I wrote, I wrote with him in mind. I attended a concert in Bloemfontein at uh, what was then the Volksblatt Fierce, in which Tian Jordan and David Kramer did a concert together. And uh, it was the most incredibly dynamic, wonderful concert that their energy and their uh, the way that they gelled was just beautiful and as we drove back to Cape Town after that concert the next day I was just thinking there's got to be a movie that can bring these two people into a story and take their, their the, take this magic and, and, and share it with other people and I, I wrote a script called Yakal's Dance and I went to see Tien so I've never met him but I, I managed to make contact with him and and he loved the story, and we made a movie together. That was the start of, of making movies for me, and I've been involved and loving it ever since. My goodness. It's a very different thing, as you said, from a novel, but don't you think something like, just let me once again talk about The Dark Flood, don't you think that would make an incredible film? It's always tricky to make a film from a, from a novel mm. because the adaptation, you're going to... You have to throw away so much, and we've done that. I've I've done that. I've actually just gone through a process now where I had to adapt one of my books into a movie script, uh, and we hope to make an exciting announcement about that in the next coming month or two. One of the challenges, for instance, was that this novel that I just adapted uh, was published, I think, 15 years ago, and in 15 years, so much has changed in South Africa, so much has changed in terms of technology. When I wrote the book, cell phones were hardly uh, uh, around, and, and suddenly now you live in a world, so we had to do a lot of adaptation, and then the thing is uh, budget, of course. Mm, um, of course yeah. Making a movie costs money, writing a novel, you can create as big a scene as you want, and it doesn't <laughs> cost you one cent. So yes. the, there are different challenges. I love adapting novels as TV series because then you have a lot more space to stay faithful to the book and all the characters in it. But even then you have to, to make changes and, and adapt. I think we need another break, another music break. Dion, and sure. what have you got for us this time? Uh, Beethoven's Violent Concerto in D Major, Opus 61, The Rondo, by Nigel Kennedy. It's mm. uh, my absolutely favorite recording of uh, Beethoven's Violent Concerto, uh, and especially because 
Kennedy improvises. He uh, he takes Beethoven's and because Beethoven was so famous for improvisation, he and Mozart. Um, and I, in that spirit, Kennedy just does something beautiful with it. Part of Beethoven's magnificent violin concerto, that famous recording with Nigel Kennedy there as the violin soloist, and it was a choice of my guests, the mm-hmm. author, Dion Mayer, who's in the studio with me today. And Dion, you know what? You've had what seems to me to be a very interesting background. I just want to find a little bit more about your background, because you started really writing copy and stuff like that, didn't you? Uh, but you always wanted to write. Writing was always in you. Yeah, I mean, when I was at school, I I used to love writing essays. But, you know, I grew up in 
Klerksdorp in uh, in the northwest province, which is not a place known for its culture. Uh, so <laughs> it's I, literally <laughs> seen. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, I never entertained the hope or the idea of being a writer one day. It just never occurred to me. My father was a blue collar worker. I grew up in a in a blue collar lower middle class neighborhood, where your only hope was to get some sort of a degree one day and maybe become a teacher or a lawyer. I was never smart enough to become a, a doctor. So, uh, you know, I hoped to be a teacher one day, and I went to Potchefstroom University, to, and I did a BA with English and History, and, and hoping to, to get my teacher's certificate, a diploma after that. But in the process, um, in my third year at university, I got involved with a, a student organization that was helping, and this was the height of apartheid. This was 1979. Mm-hmm. Um, Very bad time. Yeah, we got smuggled into the township of Potchefstroom to help black kids pass matric by giving them extra classes and, 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 and teaching classes to them. And I realized after doing this for several months that for me to spend the rest of my life giving the same lesson every year, year after year, was probably not the best idea. And it so happened that my roommate at university's uh, brother-in-law was the news editor of Die Volksblatt, the newspaper in Bloemfontein. And I knew his brother-in-law, and his brother-in-law said, but why don't you come work at Die Volksblatt? And that was the first time that I thought, oh, well, that, that sounds much more exciting than, than being a teacher. So on the spur of the moment, I applied for the position and uh, was lucky enough to get it and then sort of really discovered, rediscovered my love for writing. It was a, a, a tough learning curve. I mean, it was a harsh school to learn to write under the pressure of a daily newspaper and being a cub reporter on this. Um, but it was probably the best thing that ever happened yeah. to me yeah. because you write under pressure. You have all these very seasoned sub-editors and, and news editors subbing your work uh, I remember my very first story that I handed in had uh, Jan Scholz, my news editor, just drew all these green pen lines through it. And that's the way that you learn to work with words. The interesting thing for me was also that I always, when I was at school um, and even at university, I wrote for pleasure mainly in English. I Mm -hmm. wrote little bits of fiction in English and very bad poetry in English. And that was my first real discovery of writing in Afrikaans as a writing language. So that made a big difference. And then finally I ended up becoming uh, an advertising copywriter in Cape Town. And that was a different uh, way of writing, but again, a rigorous training. Very, where, very strict. Very strict. Very you know, strict. Where, where every word, every word. Uh, is weighed. Yes. And, and uh, I loved it. I, I learned so much from so many people. So that mm. by the time that I started writing fiction, short stories in my 30s, uh, I had had very good training for 20, 15, 20 years. Gosh. And then I read somewhere, as one does, on Google, whoever it was, that you like riding motorbikes. You're a motorcycle enthusiast. Yeah, I've always been. I uh, I started riding a little 50 motorcycle when I was still at school. It wasn't my own. It was uh, actually one of my girlfriend's brothers had gone off to the military, and he said, would you ride my bike for me while I'm not here? Absolutely fell in love with motorcycling, and uh, I was not without a motorcycle until about 
three, four years ago when finally my schedule just wasn't allowing me enough time to ride a motorbike anymore. Oh, so you're not riding around the country on a motorcycle. They not said anymore. that's one of your, your no, things to relax. No, well, I used to do a lot of it. And I also, I consulted uh, as a brand consultant to a very big motorcycle company in South Africa for six years. That was my full-time job, just to create events for motorcycle riders of this, uh-huh. of this company. And uh, I did probably 100,000 kilometers of motorcycle riding all over Southern Africa for six years. Good. Uh, so I've done my bit. And... Uh, my wife loves being on the motorcycle with me, but a couple of years ago we realized that we haven't had time for a whole year to enjoy the motorcycle. And we said, well, we're going to sell it until one day, if we have the time again, we'll buy another one. But between writing and book tours and the TV work, uh, <laughs> you know, there wasn't time. I've never been the kind of motorcycle rider who could only do a quick breakfast run to France Hook on a Sunday morning. For me, motorcycling, I did mostly off-road or, or adventure motorcycling where you, you go into the bundu for f- five, six, seven days. That was the kind of riding that I loved. Right. Clear your mind. Yeah. Now we've got a Rossini string sonata coming up as your next choice of music. Yeah, it was um, my very first uh, money that I made from uh, one of my book translations. Uh, I was in London and I used the money to buy uh, a very good little portable uh, CD player. Mm-hmm. And I was uh, at uh, in London at one of the big music stores and this was the very first CD that I bought uh, for this little music player. And I remember listening to the CD over and over on this whole book tour in the UK and I think I went over to America as well uh, and just absolutely loved it. So I have very fond memories of, of the specific. You know that Rossini was 12 when he wrote it. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah he was very young. Yeah. Okay. And it's one of his be- most beautiful works. Yeah.
the music of a very young Rossini there, one of his string sonatas, and another choice of my guest on People of Note this week, Dion Mayer. And Dion, you were talking just now about translation, and you said you write your novels in Afrikaans, they then translated. Would you not consider writing something like The Dark Flood in English? And when it is translated, do they manage to keep the nuances? It certainly seems as though they do. Well, for me, writing is hard enough in Afrikaans, which is my mother tongue. <laughs> you know, it's it's. I would be able to, to write uh, something like that in English. It's just going to take much longer and might be much harder. Because when you write, I think words have a certain energy and a feeling and a texture. And you've got to find the right word uh, for whatever you're trying to say. And finding the right word in English is always just takes me frustratingly much longer. So, um, and you know, as I said, it's, it's my mother tongue. Um, it's the language that I'm in most comfortable in. And it's something that I can do for, for a language that, uh, like a lot of smaller languages in the world, uh, is a little bit under threat. So uh, Absolutely. And so now it's been enriched by these novels of yours. And I wish I could find, right, uh, there's a scene in which Sandra is in the house, the garage, I have to be careful not to do any spoilers, and it's raining. And you use a lovely phrase of the rain on the roof, and I'm not going to remember it now, and if I try and look for it. Can you remember? I can't remember. Okay, no. No. We'll no, remember it, after the interview. Yeah, the, you know, the, the translation... I often get asked what gets lost in translation, and I don't think anything gets lost in translation because, I mean, in, in the Afrikaans version, Vaughan Cupido speaks Cape Flats Afrikaans, mm -hmm. which is a, a dialect of Afrikaans that I absolutely adore. I think it is the most musical and beautiful version of Afrikaans, but there's no way that you can translate that. But yeah. then again, if you're an English reader in the UK who've never heard Cape Flats Afrikaans, you're not going to appreciate it. So w what you need to do is to translate Vaughan's dialogue into something that works f for him as a character and, and makes the story go forward. My argument has always been that story is an international language. Character humanity is an international language. And if you can get the humanity of the characters right and you get the story right, readers will never lose anything in the translation. But having said that, my translator, Laura Siegers, she's incredibly good, and we work together very closely. You know, every 10 chapters that she's translated, she'll send me. I'll go through there, and I'll make sure that every word in there is true to what I meant as as the author. So I'm very happy that once the English translation is done, that it is as good as the Afrikaans mm. uh, in every single way. But I see in this book, I don't know if you do it in all your books, but you put a lot of what Cupido says in uh, italics. Yeah. And at the back, you've got a glossary of all yeah. these Afrikaans and terms that are used on the Cape Flats. Yeah. That even maybe some white people in Cape Town would yeah. understand. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that keeps the sort of yeah. texture, doesn't yeah. it, of that character? No, I think so. I mean, we also do that in the, the UK edition. This is very much the South African edition that is... I think three or four months before the UK edition and the American edition, mm. and we do the glossary specifically for those overseas markets as okay. well. Okay. So you sell very well internationally, don't you, if I've read my books well? Eleven novels, short stories. You sell internationally well. I'm, I'm very <laughs> blessed with that. You're yeah. very blessed. And Dion, as we reach the end of our interview, is it silly of me to say, is there another book is there another story in your mind? There is. Um, I have started on a new novel. 
Um, we're just finishing some television work at the moment, uh, and then I hope in December to get really stuck in, and it should be out in Afrikaans next year. Are you a disciplined writer? Do you write at a certain time of day? Yeah, I am. I think that's the only way that you can get a, a book done. I get up quite early in the morning. I hope to start at around about six o'clock every morning. And then usually I write until lunchtime, unless I am almost done with the book. The last quarter of a book, I will often write 14, 16 hours a day because you, you feel you have to finish it. Mm -hmm. And do you have, what sort of writing space do you have? I, I <laughs> it's got to be quiet so I don't listen to music while I write and it's got to be dark because the more distractions there are the easier it is not to concentrate mm. so I uh, I have a, a a room a sort of a study in which I sit all the blinds are closed oh, really? I sit with my back to the window and uh, that's not what I expect you to say. <laughs> I thought you were going to say you sat looking at the beautiful mountains no because looking at the mountains is not going to get the book done you <laughs> know true. so I I really try to minimize the distractions as much as I can mm -hmm. you know every morning when you sit down it takes you a half an hour to get your head into this world again of course. and the moment that you are distracted it takes you another half an hour to get in there so mm -hmm. I try to focus and uh, yeah I wonder how you stop you think right I'm stopping there for today that's it I need a break. Yeah, you know, I will often write a, a chapter and then finish and then walk away, go have tea with my wife, mm. uh, thinking about the next chapter and how I want to start it, and then I'll come back. So I, I won't write uh, for hours on end. I, usually it's about 60 to 90 minutes of writing and then taking a quick break, just gathering my thoughts, sometimes rewriting um, that's that's my and how you that. don't ride your mm -hmm. motorbike about anymore so how do you relax do you go for walks do you climb mountains we do mountain biking um, oh do you do Mariana mountain biking yeah okay. it's a lot of the same technical challenges of, of riding a motorcycle off road but you can do that uh, in an hour every day we sort of ride five days a week we do an hour or two hours of riding in the beautiful Stellenbosch mountains right. uh, we do a bit of walking we love traveling um, reading movies. How about a book one day that involves classical music? Maybe a musician whose violin is stolen. No, I've I've considered that. You know, I mean, the, with, with your love of Mozart. Yeah, Mozart. yeah. I had I have a character in one of my previous books called uh, uh, Lemmer, who was a very big Mozart fan. Yeah. Ah, okay. Dion, we're going to have to stop now, as much as I'm enjoying this. But what I've particularly enjoyed about our conversation is hearing you speak about the nuts and bolts of writing a book and of these characters that you create. So thank you for sharing that with us. And what's your last piece of music? Well, Roddy, thank you very much for having me. My last bit of music is I became a grandfather this year. Oh, congratulations. And, uh, it's for my uh, grandson, and it's Elizabeth Mitchell's You Are My Sunshine. <laughs> That's a lovely way to end. Dion Mayer, thank you very much. And don't forget to look at Dion's latest book, The Dark Flood, and you'll see what I mean when you get into that. Thanks, Dion. Thank you, Rodney. Are gray. You 
much I love you. Please don't take my sunshine away. The other night, dear, when I lay sleeping, I dreamt I held you in my arms. When I woke, dear, I was mistaken. So I hung my head and cried. You are my sunshine. I love you. Please don't take my sunshine away. People of Note on Fine Music Radio was proudly brought to you by Peter Turin Productions. FMR.